Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another not exciting week of athletics. Maybe we should change the open up while we don't have sports for the last 60 plus days because it might give people the wrong impression that I'm poking fun at the fact that we don't have sports. You might be listening to the first time. That's how we usually start the show when things are on the up and up, folks. It's a habit. And unfortunately, it got even worse Sunday night when the last two episodes of The Last Dance premiered, ending the 10 part documentary series, a bittersweet end to what I I think is one of the best sports documentaries, if not the best. People will argue about OJs, and that was exciting, but the theme of what they were talking about doesn't tickle your heartstrings, following a guy around that was at the top of football and of sports and then ends up murdering his wife and her companion. Really doesn't get you emotional and teary-eyed quite the way that this documentary did with all the stories they told of Michael Jordan. You're actually watching it now, again, not live, again, and I'll probably watch it again as well. I just left it on last night to watch the replay, to watch SVP show, to break everything down. Still can't get enough of it. Wish there was more, but we can finally put an end and period on this documentary and talk a little bit about the last couple episodes and what we saw in general and broader to start your feelings now that everything's wrapped up were you satisfied with the end results what are you feeling now that the end cuts and end credits finally started to roll and this is unfortunately put to bed well, well why don't we just ask michael wilbon and see what he thinks yeah break <laughs> i should have got him on the I show this go. week for you Every week, I got to go with the Michael Wilbon input. Every week, enough already. What do I think? What do I think? What did I think? Uh, it was extraordinary. Remember, not a Bulls fan rooted against them for the most part throughout this run, rooted for the Jazz those last two seasons, rooted for the Pacers in the conference finals, and Reggie thought they had them. But it allowed me to relive that time frame, to watch and appreciate again, I think even more so now, because there's no rooting interest. The greatness of not just Michael Jordan, but those teams, which I probably have always given a little short shrift because they didn't have to play. Uh, the Lakers of the 80s. They didn't have to play the Celtics of the 80s. Uh, They did play the Pistons of the 80s at the end of the Pistons of the 80s. They didn't have to play the Sixers of the 80s. But they played a lot of good teams. Not, not, Not crappy teams, not marginal. They played a lot of really good. The Pacer teams were really good. 
Uh, the Knicks were incredibly good defensively and tough and physical. They couldn't put the ball in the ocean. And they played good teams in the finals. Not lousy teams, not crappy teams, not marginal teams. The Sonics were really good. That Phoenix team was an excellent team. Excellent. Uh, remember, they had home court against the Bulls. And the Blazer team was pretty good. It wasn't as good as the Phoenix team. Uh, probably on par with the Seattle team. The two Jazz teams were excellent. They were very, very good teams. They had two all-time players in John Stockton and, and Carl Malone. And I probably always still look at the Bulls from the attitude of, well, they never beat a great team regardless. They never beat a great team. They never beat a great team in their conference. They never beat a, a great team in the finals. Obviously, you know, my Laker team for the first title, our Laker team in 91 was it was a good team. But that was a team that was at the end. Uh, that was a team that had to fight like hell to beat the Blazers to get to the finals and the young and healthy balls with the greatest player in the world, which is too much for. Them. But, you know, there are things that you know I never knew. I never got to see, uh, you know, last night seeing the, the exchange. As limited it was from Jordan, but that little that little blip from Jordan, that little movement of the lips and, and quick word to Steve Kerr, uh, you know, about the double team could be coming. And Kerr saying, yeah, if they double, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. You know, with George, just kind of like giving the little nod. That, that was about it. And he was ready. And it was his moment. He stepped up and, you know, made the shot. Uh, I didn't know it was pizza. I thought it was the flu. Uh, Nick Wright says it may have been a hangover. No, you don't have that reaction to a hangover. I've had plenty of them. Well, let's right? let's get you're into not, that for a second because for, you're, for you're what we learned, the, you're not you're not on the bench, doubled over, right, near exhaustion from a hangover. No, no. However, many food hours later, it would have been food, food poisoning. Yes, even more so than the flu. This was but, a game that wasn't played at 7 in the morning. It was played at night. It was a typical night game. Sure, you're dealing with a little bit of time change from Chicago, but not enough to warrant. This man spent probably close to 19 hours of the day awake, maybe even more, having a good time with his life around basketball, including gambling, casinos, Cards, exactly. golf, etc., drinking, whatever, and he was he, always ready for the game. You're going to exactly. tell me he, all he of a sudden during the NBA Finals, some tequila got to his head? Right. No, it, it, there's no way, unless it was spiked drinks or something. He, this was his lifestyle. I mean, he was no Dennis Rodman. With this type of lifestyle, Dennis took no, it never got to ten times more. But he was, he, was, he was literally like, I mean, the guy was like, you know, the Prince of Darkness. Never got tired. Always knew what his body could do. Now, all of a sudden, in what could be his last finals, he's going to go out and get obliterated in Utah right. in so, near right. Salt Lake City before a finals game. I I can't wrap my head around it. No, I don't think so. But so. but. There's, there's a still a lot of question marks with this tale. Food poisoning, you can understand. But how they went about getting the food is still quite confusing to me. 
What's open in Utah at that hour? Nothing according to them. Nothing according to them, which is understandable. And they weren't staying in downtown like people might think. They were kind of away from the soiree, and it's the late 90s. There's no Grubhub. There's no Seamless. There's no Uber Eats. Very difficult to get food. If the hotel itself doesn't have room service, which is shocking that they're in a hotel that doesn't have room service as the Chicago Bulls in 1998, but... Maybe Utah. The, the jet, the, yeah, Utah and the Jazz could have had a hand in that. I mean, like, oh, yeah, stay over there. It's great over there. Great amenities. Fantastic amenities. There's no room service. What? Oh, no, nothing. It'll be great. So, okay. They find a place. The confusing part is it's understandable for the pizza place to know where the team was staying. In 2020, you can find out where a basketball team is staying. It's not the hardest thing in the world to do, especially now with social media. But back then, there's only so many places you could stay. Easy enough to figure out that the Bulls are at this hotel. How they knew, though, that that specific room was ah, that of easy. Michael Jordan. That's easy. Is interesting. Come on, you're, you're coming to deliver the pie. You know, I, I got a pizza for room like 1217, and the guy's just, that's Jordan's room, you know. I mean, come on. I wonder how specific they had to get because it made it seem like they called the pizza place and said, hey, Michael Jordan needs a pizza ASAP. Do your best work. He's picky about his toppings. Give him some pepperoni, half pepperoni, half plain, and get it to us as soon as you possibly can. Again, it's for Michael Jordan. I, I would think they'd be a little bit more secretive about their pizza order. An alias, one of us will come down in the lobby and pick it up. It's it's just surprising to me that with, I'm assuming, all the added security on top of his own security crew, that a group of five grown men with a pizza, I hope, having some form of identification on like a polo shirt lapel saying that they're part of this pizza place, were able to get to the door of Michael Jordan and hand him this pizza. Before Utah, the NBA man. Finals. What are you doing? I, I know it's Utah, but his people Utah. keep them away. It's Utah. You got to do a better Hungry, job. Man. Mike's hungry. Whatever it was, whether it was food poisoning, whether it was the flu, he was drained. He was shot. And remember, early in that game, he couldn't do a thing. Right. But he found a way as he... I'm not going to say always because nobody is Superman. He's had bad games. He's had games where he missed winning shots. But the point is 666, and that's always what it comes down to. No matter who you compare him to in any sport, it always comes down to the same thing. It always comes down to the argument. And at the end of the argument, says, well, that's your only argument. It's the only argument I need. Six finals, six titles. Six finals MVPs. It is a very difficult argument to defeat, especially when those six are over a span of eight years uh, of which he played six and a third. You see things like the exchange on the bench with Kerr, the Kerr remarks, okay, in – the celebration afterwards in Grand Park, uh, where he bailed Mike out. Um, you know, Mike didn't want to take the shot. Let's go to Steve, which I thought was hysterical. So good. Uh, you find you obviously, obviously we, we knew about the tragic uh, murder of Steve's cursed father, but we, we find out 
more about that and how it affected him earlier in his life. You know, he was in Arizona, etc. And the question about how if him and Jordan ever talked about, you know, the scenario with their respective fathers both being murdered. Um, you see Scottie Pippen much maligned uh, because of his refusal to go into the game the year Jordan was out over the first season that Jordan was out on the design of the last shot for Kukoc and Scotty Pippen, who had the foot surgery uh, instead of early in the off season uh, late because he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to fuck up his summer. All right. Um, but then you see Scotty Pippen with the bad back and gutting it out. And Jordan saying, I just need you out here. I just need you out here to just be out here and be a decoy. Just take up the space. Just be out here. And he got it out, made a couple of big shots. Obviously, there was nothing anywhere near full strength. You see him barely at times able to get up and down the court. But it made me in the long run. And again, I'm not going to put him at the top of the heap. I'm never going to put them at the top of the heap. I'm never going to put him ahead of the Laker teams of the 80s. I'm never going to put ahead of the Celtic teams of the 80s. I'm never going to put him of the 72 Lakers. They had the greatest season in the history of the sport. Bulls and Warriors be damned because the Warriors didn't win a championship and the Bulls didn't win 33 in a row. Nobody's ever won 33 in a row in any of the major sports. Extraordinary. Unequaled. And will remain unequaled for as long as I can breathe. But I have to absolutely positively say I have a greater appreciation for the Bulls as a great team now than I did when this started. And I was right in the middle of it at the time. I was obviously full, you know, it was, it, it started, you know, in 1990 slash 91. So it's 30 years ago. I'm, I'm 32 years old. I was of sound mind most of the time and body. Most of the time I was in my prime. Uh, athletically, physically, mentally, and sports-wise, sports fan-wise, I was in my big-time prime. So the appreciation understanding was there, but the bias against them was also there. The bias is now gone. They were great teams. The first three were great. The second three were great. We can talk all night about which ones we thought were better. The bottom line is, they were fabulous basketball teams. Six in eight, all six when he was there, was an incredible run. And I have a greater appreciation for the Chicago Bulls championship team's run now than I've ever had. I don't think I have a great appreciation of Michael Jordan. I think I saw sides of him I didn't see before that kind of made it more fun to watch. But I don't think he was any greater at the end of this than I thought he was at the beginning of this because I thought he was the greatest player. I thought he was the fieriest, toughest, fiercest competitor I ever saw uh, in the NBA. I still think that nothing in here dispels that for me. The bully shit to me is a crock of crap. This isn't Bobby Knight grabbing Neil, Ru Neil Reed in a practice. These are grown men. Whether it's Burrell, 
whether it's Luke Longley, whether it's Bill Cartwright. These guys are seven feet tall and 280 pounds, six foot seven and 240 pounds, six foot six and 220. These are grown men playing as a business. This is their profession. That's what he thought it was best to do to get his team, his group, his business partners to succeed. There's no namby-pamby bullshit here. Oh, he's, he's being a bully. Being a bully? This is not high school. This is not college. This is not, you know, grade school ball. This is not camp. This is not the, the kicking feet on the, the kicking you know, sand in somebody's face. This is the real world. These are men, real men, grown-ups, playing for millions of dollars. And the leader of those grown-ups doing what he thought was necessary at the appropriate time to motivate those other grown-ups to be the best they could be. And it worked six out of six times in the finals. Before that, they weren't good enough. They're not good players. Clearly, you got to have great players. And they had one other great player, and they had a lot of good players. People don't realize what a good player, not great, what a really good player Horace Grant was. Horace Grant was a good player with the Lakers later on. Horace Grant was a really good player with the Magic to beat the Bulls. People don't realize what a good player Tony Kukoc was or what a solid player John Paxson was or Steve Kerr in terms of, you know, they were maybe not to the extent in terms of the length of their, but they were Derek Fisher types. They were Robert Ory types. Always there when you needed them and had the ability to step up when their number was called. Dennis Rodman was, you know, a, a, in, in a class by himself. He was a brilliant defender, brilliant rebounder, one of the great, use the term loosely in quotes, characters of all time. Hated him. Hated him as a piston. Hated him as a ball. Always rooted against him. But it came up big, continuing. Big rebound, big stop, big tip-in. Just always there to do the dirty work. And you had the man. You had the man who did whatever was necessary to motivate his team, put them on his shoulders. He's good at pass. I mean, this this, this cockamamie uh, survey. You know, and then 69% of the people had Michael Jordan is better passing the Brian James. Of course, that's not true. But the point is, you saw that when he needed to be, he was a great passer. And he was unafraid to make the pass. He's an all-time scorer. All-time scorer's job is to score. He was a brilliant defender. He was a great leader. But he was, when he had to be, a brilliant passer who knew when and where to pass the ball and to whom and knew every spot on the floor, knew where Kerr was, knew where Pax was, knew where Longley was for that bucket at the end of game one that sent it into overtime that they lost. Knew where Bill Wennington was at the end of the 55-point game in the garden for the dunk and the win. Always knew when the double team was coming, sensed it, felt it, knew where his players were on the floor. Coached? Absolutely. Coached up? Absolutely. Great coach. But the great sense of the game, again, the footwork, the understanding of where people are on the floor at certain times. Where am I going to find them? How am I going to find them? Where is their spot on the floor? 
he was a brilliant basketball player. He was an incredible specimen. And he was the fiercest competitor I've ever seen. Put that combination together with a, a good supporting cast and another top player and not having to play the Lakers or the Celtics or the Sixers. And he got six championships. The great appreciation I have for them is, is much greater than I had before they started. The great appreciation I have for him is status quo. I think this did an incredible job, especially toward the end. And for the season, it was meant to signify and put a spotlight over was just how hard, how exhausting, how difficult this entire process was. In totality, the six championships, but specifically to win three in a row again in 97-98. How much emphasis either Michael or other players would put on, Phil Jackson said it, just how exhausting it is season after season to be able to perform at the highest stage in the dreads of the East where they're coming for your blood every night, knocking you to the ground, throwing you around, and then having to deal with whoever would come from the West. It was very interesting to hear that side of the difficulty of it, especially with the storyline surrounding the final season where before the whistle blows or the ball is tipped, the GM of your team says you can win every game that you play and you're still out to the head coach. Great. Well, we're off on the right foot. Let's call this the last dance and we'll have that hanging over our head for the entirety of the season and postseason. Having to answer questions about it, along with dealing with everything else about the team, this being the major storyline. Is this your last game in Chicago? What do you think about the future of this team? Over and over and over, on top of the competition itself. I can understand at the end of it now, something that I didn't understand when I was eight years old, when all this was happening. I was the biggest Michael Jordan fan in the world, along with a hundred million other kids. That th This was easy. This is what the Bulls do. This is what Mag Michael Jordan does. Six championships in eight years. Come on. We'll win another one next season. The only reason he doesn't have eight is because he took those two years off to make Space Jam. <laughs> this is easy. Of course he the, could do this. You see the, how much it was not an easy thing for them to do. Not, not just to win three in a row, just winning one. What do they always? What What does everybody? What What do champions always say? That have repeated. Huh? Well, 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 the second one's always harder. Always, because everybody's always out to get you. You get their best every night. Champs in town. Bring your A game. Everybody wants to knock off the champ. That's why I get in this discussion, fight, disagree with Nick Wright all the time. What? Because he has Tim Duncan had a Kobe Bryant. And he talks about Tim Duncan's five championships. He has him seventh greatest player of all time. I said he, 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 he either had David Robinson with him in the beginning, and he always had Ginobili, and he always had Parker. And yet he could never repeat. Not once. He won five championships. How many times did you repeat? Well, why do, why do you make it? Why do you put so much emphasis on repeating? Because you listen to these guys. What do they say the hardest thing to do is? The guys who don't do it say the hardest thing is to repeat. The guys who repeat see their greatest accomplishments, they repeated. Kobe Bryant repeated once, twice with Shaq, all right, and again without him. Repeated three times. Three times. 
2001, 2002, and the second time around the fifth championship in 2010. Tim Duncan and the Spurs had five chances to repeat. They didn't do it once. And a wonderful player, great player. Top 15 player. Seventh? Sorry. Never repeated. Popovich, never repeated. Multiple, multitude of chances. Didn't repeat. Not once you didn't repeat. Five titles. Couldn't repeat once. Greatness, yes. All-time greatness, sorry. You don't, you don't get in there. You're not in that special room if you never repeated. Couldn't do it once. You don't get to get in the special room. But the point is, it is far and away the hardest thing to do in sports. Come back and win it again. They won it again and again, and then came back and won it again and again. Mental, physical, the pressure, the money, the contracts, the jealousy, the egos. Extraordinary that they could do that over that period of time. They are an all-time top five team. Take them as a whole. Take one, then the other. I take them as a whole. I, I, to me, they're the bulls of the 90s, and they're a top five group of all time. That, you know, my life that I've seen. The Celtics of the 50s and early 60s that started the Russell run, I did not see. I saw the Celtics of the mid-60s and the last part of the run. The Celtics of 65, 66, 68, 69. I, I, I saw the last four. I didn't see you know, the first seven of the 11 and 13 years. The Lakers of the 80s, uh, you know, the Lakers of the 2000s, the Celtics of the 80s, all extraordinary teams. This group with their six titles, right there with them, right there with them, right there in the mix. I put them behind the Lakers and the Celtics, but right there in the mix. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. What I also th- thought was terrific in this is seeing the class of the other team, seeing you know Larry Bird in the locker room after Game Seven, coming over and, and talking to Michael, seeing after losing a gut wrenching sixth game at home. For the second year in a row, getting towards the end of their career, Malone on that bus coming in to shake the Bulls' hands after losing a gut-wrenching game six. Poor Carl. Carl, you're missing this because you don't have a Twitter. Hasn't... uh had the best of a couple days from the people that know some of the things that he's done off the court, we'll say. And a lot of younger fans were not aware of some of the things Mr. Malone has done off the court. So Twitter was fun. The Carl Malone train last night and into today, which you missed because you're still not on Twitter. I did enjoy, too, how Michael Jordan greeted Larry Bird after he knocked off his Indiana Pacers with, you bitch, fuck you, with the biggest smiles on both their faces. Exactly. <laughs> Both their faces. I'm surprised exactly. Larry didn't drop the two, them. The two greatest, the two greatest trash talkers of all time. Loved it. You get ready to work on that golf game of yours. <laughs> exactly. 
You know, pe- people think people don't. Another thing, people don't understand. Larry Bird was one of the, along with Jordan, an incredible trash talker. Nonstop. Well, Larry's also done what I think Michael absolutely wanted to do, but hasn't gotten there yet. And that's he's been MVP as a player, coach of the year, executive of the year. Well, I don't think Michael ever wants to be coach of the year. I don't think he'll ever coach either. But the, the way that Larry went through the ranks, like kind of how you guess you should on paper. I mean, he he did well at every stage, at least trophy wise. Mike is taking a little while to get the Charlotte team off the and ground. I was, and I was, I was frankly surprised. I never saw Larry Bird as being a coach. Yeah, he did. A, he, he did a wonderful job, coach. That, that was a really good Pacer team. It was. I mean, when you see the guys that were on that team, when when, when you know they're reciting who's on that team, when Jalen Rose is, remember Jalen Rose is a bench player, and he's a really good player. But Chris Mullen, okay, not in his prime anymore, but still a really good player. The Davis boys, who were brutes, Smiths, the Duncan Dutch was a very good player. Mark Jackson was still a solid point guard, excellent passer, and Miller was was Miller. Miller was Mister Clutch. Miller was knocking down big shots left and right, fearless. He wasn't a great defender. He wasn't a great passer. But Miller was a, Miller was a big-time player. Not always a great player, but he was fearless. And guys who are fearless are what you want. When the bright lights are on, you want the guy who wants the shot. You want the guy who's not going to be afraid that is there in the moment and ready to take the ball and take the stroke and not even given missing a, sec- a second thought. A lot that's of what made Bryant so great. That's what made, you know, that, that's good fearlessness. And when they were talking on that last possession, after the steal, when he stripped Malone from the, coming from the weak side, and they talked about, what did Pippa think? Get the hell out of the way. Sounds like they're talking about Kobe Bryant. Because, you know, Kobe's going to shoot. No matter what, he shoots. That's what they say about Brian. He, you know, he's, he's not going to pass the ball. And that's what they said about Jordan that last time. He's going to, he's going to Robin, get out of the way. He's shooting this effing ball. <laughs> Scotty, let, 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 let me find a space. All right. Let me make sure I'm, let me make sure I'm out of his way. And Jordan's saying, I, I, I had him sized up. You know, I still carry that grudge against Russell saying what he said. So I watched the way he moved his feet. I watched his movement. I knew I could take him, go by him. Or he'd get all twisted up if I pulled up and he gave him that he gave him the head fake, got him all twisted up, gave him a little love tap, stumbling, fumbling, and the stroke. The stroke is it's just it's I said to my son last night, watching the hand go into the basket. The stroke is a thing of beauty. It just is. He follows it all the way through the net. It's like poetry. It's so beautiful. The rotation on the basketball, seeing the movement of that net, it doesn't touch the rim. It's just as beautiful a thing as there is in sports. And it was the perfect ending to that run. Yeah, then he left the league after that shot, Al. (laughs) Then he left the league, which I think this was a good way to – put a cap on things and and sort of save it to the end. I mean, obviously they would because that's where the story was headed, but you kind of get a bombshell-ish moment at the end of this, which 
we'll get into in a couple minutes why I'm I'm going against some of the detractors and some of the things people say is wrong with this documentary or their quips about it because some of it is just foolishness. But we hear from Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the team, his thoughts on what he was feeling after they won that championship. Because the question is, why did the Bulls higher ups, the two Jerry's, decide to break up this team? And he gives an answer and the director again magnificently just hands the iPad to Michael Jordan and says, Here's what Jerry had to say about the end of your run. And Mike says basically he didn't want to retire. He wanted to run it back. Like you do in, in a pickup league. You win, run it back until somebody beats you. And his reasoning is that maybe if he could have talked to Phil, maybe if he could have talked to all the other guys, they would have signed one-year deals and they could have come back to try and win a seventh. It seemed like Phil was incredibly exhausted, as he mentioned. And I don't think he took kindly to Jerry Krause's comments at the beginning of the season about the 82-0, and even though Jerry Reinsdorf says to him, hey, we want you back for one more year. Forget about what he said. We'll go over his head. We want you back. And he kind of was like, eh, I don't know. I think I'm good. And Michael said he was only play for Phil, so he was good. But it just seemed like it wasn't as surprising or as abrupt as, say, like the Barry Sanders retirement was, where one day he just woke up and was like, eh, I don't know, I, I'm not going to play anymore, and it floored everyone. This didn't necessarily floor everyone because it was being said this was going to be his last year, they were going to break the team up, but it left it up in the air that it could have happened maybe if they tried, and it didn't seem like they did. They just kind of kept going down the same path without trying to intervene and, and fix things. So it leaves it to argument now. What would have happened if they ran it back, same teams, let's see what happens. Because as you were talking about, Tim Duncan and David Robinson would have most likely been waiting in the finals since they won that year. I would assume history, the butterfly effect, wouldn't hit them too hard. But then that brings tons of questions. Could this same team have gone against those guys and, and just gone against that league because that was the year there was only 50 games because of a lockout? Hey, how about that? A shortened basketball season. <laughs> Who would have thought there'd be shortened sports seasons in the past, Al, that we could do something like this? So people say they would have had more no, rest, but they no also – No asterisk for Tim and, and Dave. And nobody says Tim Duncan has four and a half championships. No, no. Somehow we forgot about the 50 games for that season. I get the rest part because you're playing less games, but they also played a lot more back-to-backs and back-to-back-to-backs as well. So you would still be playing a lot of basketball in a short amount of time, even though it was only 50 games. So it leaves it up to interpretation, which is, I don't know, it's kind of disappointing. I mean, logically, you would say Scottie Pippen wanted to get paid, and they weren't going to throw the the bag of money at him for a one-year deal, I don't think. He leaves to the Rockets and gets something like $67 million for however long his contract was. Well, remember, technically, I believe that was a sign-in trade, was it not? Right, sign-in trade. Sign and trade. So he but got his th- money. They would have had to pay him. That's where you have the dichotomy right. at the end of this. You have the bombshell from Reisdorf that says, I went over Jerry's head and I said to Phil, come back for one more year. You know, uh, let's. But on the other hand, at the same time, he said, 
but Phil didn't want to be part of a rebuild. So he is saying, I asked Phil to come back, but he isn't saying I was going to bring everybody else back. So if you're Phil Jackson, do you want to come back for one more shot at it with whomever? You probably, I'm not saying you can guarantee anything, but you know, if, if you decide to stay, Jordan has said he'd only play for you, you figure he would stay. Uh, because remember, he signed all one, these were all one-year deals, like he says. He, right. He was on some long-term contract. He didn't hold the bulls up. He was continually doing one-year deals when he come back. The problem is Pippen. Not that he, him, but you were going to have to pay him. And Jerry Reiser didn't want to pay Pippen. He was he was who you needed. As far as should we should we run it back same team type of well, deal? Of who are we going to bring barely, back? He's who you need. He's who you need, and he's he would have been the hardest one. Of course, because you got to pay him a massive amount of you, you had to pay, you'd have to pay thirty five million dollars, right? And you were paying him, you know, three uh, on the seven year eighteen million dollar deal. So Pippen was going to get 10 times what he was making. The other guys, I mean, we talked about bringing back, having to bring back Carr, Bushler, Robin, et cetera. But the point is, it's all revolves around Pippen. You're going to have to pay him over $30 million. And I'm sure not in a one-year deal, which they clearly didn't want to do. It would kind of be like a you owe me type of deal. So that becomes a scenario of, Okay, Phil, you come back. Michael will probably come back and play for you. If, if we get Michael to come back, will you come back? And then it comes. Then it goes with Michael saying, "Well, if if I say Phil's going to come back and I'm going to come back, I get scouted." Anyway, I understand what he's saying, but he's not going to get scouted to come back on a one-year, ten million dollar deal. Highly doubtful. No, no, not highly doubtful. No, it's not happening. <laughs> All right. So the question is. Could he have gotten Pippen to come back on a, you know, a one-year, $35 million deal? If he could, would rise to a fam. I doubt it. I doubt it. It's too bad they didn't ask. Well, maybe they did. This wasn't something that they went to Scotty on and asked him, would you have come back under any circumstances? Well, remember what they also had hanging over their head. What did you say about that season? What was that season? What happened that season? Carmen Electra was at the games. Short season. Why was there a short oh, season? Short season. Why was there a short yeah, season? There was a lockout, right. Why was there a lockout? Collective bargaining agreement yep. issues. So they also had that that they were facing. You know, Roger are talking about you know guys not paying you know, not, not paying them the money because uh, they were at the the portion of their careers that it wasn't sound business sense to pay them what it was going to be necessary to keep them. And even if we brought Phil back, the rest of the group wasn't going to be back. So is Michael and Phil enough? Not probably not for Phil. Phil probably saw the handwriting on the wall. Right. Jerry Krause did. He did. Maybe uh, the other Jerry did. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report, here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. 
I think what's fascinating too is a lot has been made about the other player that gets compared to Michael Jordan as the greatest player of all time and LeBron James. And today was filled with who's better and surveys and poll questions, et cetera, et cetera. Which is all nonsense. Right. It really is. We do know, though, that there have been seasons with the Cavs after LeBron left the Heat where he handpicked a lot of his team or at least made strong suggestions. He's cherry-picked. Yeah, which is Uh, fine. I mean, he's... You're allowed to... Look, you're allowed to do it. He did enough to do it. He's carpet-bagged his way to, uh, you know, a couple titles. Right. With the Heat. And then, you know, he had... Uh, the hot shot uh, who made the big shot to win a championship in Cleveland. So um, who's a character, but the kid made the shot. He didn't. And he was brilliant in those finals. He's a brilliant player. He's an all time player. He's a top five player. Um, But there's only one greatest player. There can only be one greatest of all time. And you know, it's Michael Jordan, period, end of story. You can throw out the numbers and you can throw out the statistics and you can throw out the efficiency ratings and the player ratings and the plus minuses when you're on the court, all the new age nuances and all the numbers now that have come into basketball uh, you know, that were in baseball and now we're in basketball as well. The bottom line is that this guy scored 45 points of an 80, you know, when his team scores 85. This guy's willing teams to win. This guy's taking teams on his back. Did LeBron do that at times? Absolutely. Maybe. You, the fact that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all pl- of all time doesn't make Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or anybody else that much less of a player. As Bob Costas said last night, you know, it, it's very difficult to prepare to, to compare, excuse me, which I always and Costas is, you know, accurate, and I've said it forever. It's very hard to, to compare guards forwards to centers. When we talk about the greatest player of all time, it's very hard to think of a center as the greatest player of all time because you usually need someone to get him the ball. So it's always been very hard to call Wilt or Kareem or if you want to say Russell, the greatest player of all time, because they're not handling the ball. They're not bringing the ball up. They're not shooting the ball from outside. But as Costa said last night, you can make an argument for Kareem with his six titles, with his three for three in college at UCLA, one with the Bucks, five with the Lakers, all-time leading scorer, MVP at 35 of the finals. You could certainly make the argument. But you know, as guards and forwards go, it's Michael Jordan. And that's not a knock. That's not an insult. That's not to bring down the greatness of LeBron James or Oscar Robertson or Jerry West or Kobe Bryant or anybody else, you know, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, anybody else you want to throw in the, in the equation. There can only be one greatest of all time, whomever you think it is. And there's the right answer that's michael jordan and there's the wrong answer which is anyone else it's hard not to watch the 10-part documentary and and come away from it thinking anything else and i know people will say that well that's because michael jordan had a hand in it and the nba had a hand in it and netflix and they they were the controlling the narrative and the story 
Well, I don't know how many times the director has had to come out and say that was not the case. Whatever I wanted answered, he answered. Whatever I asked, they did they gave change back. any law? Did they change any losses to wins? No. But he addressed all that. He addressed the conspiracy theories, the gambling, his father's death. Anything you wanted was on the table. There wasn't any reports of he didn't want to talk about it. It's just something that is a silly argument to make because he was very upfront, the director, in saying, look, I asked everything I wanted to ask, and he answered everything I wanted to have answered. And the people that say that, well, we didn't need this to be that long, or we didn't need it at all because we all knew these stories, and you could easily access the information if you don't with a simple Wikipedia or a Google search. Okay, well, I, I didn't have the time, I didn't have the inclination, etc., to, to Wikipedia him and Steve Kerr on the bench. I didn't have the time or inclination to find out how to get into the locker room and find some of this stuff out that was going on in these conversations and these discussions. I didn't have the time, the ability, or the inclination, all right, to hear and figure out, you know, how they were going to approach certain teams and double teams and open guys or the reactions of guys who he brutalized and bullied. And what did they say at the end of this? It worked. What did Will Purdue say? And Bill Wellington, it worked. We won. That was the goal. These weren't interviews conducted with the guests the former players, the former coaches, reading a script of old quotes that they gave years ago. This wasn't done with a ton of pre-recorded stuff. Where else are you going to find Michael Jordan? First of all, just talk. We mentioned this on this show before. Unfortunately, it had to do with Kobe Bryant's death, but him talking at the funeral floored everybody because he just doesn't do this. He doesn't get in front of the public and just speak talk, answer questions. He's always just kept to himself, even in the age of social media, even as an owner of a basketball team. Statements are prepared. They're sent out with purpose. There's no just hopping on Instagram stories for 10 minutes and answering questions on Instagram Live, which if he did, my goodness, that would be the highest number of views of all Instagram's time. Forget about the Kardashians. He doesn't do anything like this and gave eight to ten hours of his time to do it. That alone makes this worth watching. But handing him an iPad and getting his genuine reaction from it's moments classic. throughout his life, you're not going to get that anywhere else. I mean, it, it went across the Internet quicker than you could imagine. Memes and videos and GIFs. Oh, my. That was some of the best TV we've had in sports. Just his genuine reactions to different things that happen. Let me give you three scenes that I love. One, you don't see him. You just see the red Corvette with his arms sticking out and signing the autographs early <laughs> on. Right. Last night, the Porsche with the air plate. And the exchange I told you about from the series against the Knicks, I believe 92. I always get those years confused with the Knicks, but I'll believe 92 where Xavier McDaniel tried to intimidate Scottie Pippen and you saw Jordan and McDaniel bald head to bald head. 
literally forehead to forehead, top of the head to top of the head, perspiration dripping off each one of them, or Jordan simply would not back down and got into McDaniel's face and said, fuck you, X, fuck you, when he was trying to intimidate Scottie Pippen. And their heads were literally butting. It was like two Brahma bulls. It was classic. He just would not back down ever from anyone, any, anywhere. And that, that, that's part of leading. That's part of leading. He showed Pippen right there. This guy's not going to intimidate us. And I'm not going to let, let him intimidate you. We're going to kick his ass. This guy's rough and he's tough, but he is not going to get your goat. I'm going to make sure he does it. I got your back. That's leading too. That's showing you're the man. That's showing you got your guys back. As much as you may cajole your guys, push your guys, abuse your guys, bully your guys, at the end of the day, where are you? You're on the front line to defend your guys. It's part of being the best who's ever laced them up. The best I've ever seen in a court. The best I will ever see in my lifetime. There's the embrace with magic when he wins his first championship against the Lakers. Your Lakers at that time, because I was only like one year old. <laughs> There's the locker room sound of him collapsing to the ground after they win the championship on Father's Day. That sound we've never heard before. There's always something else going on or just still shots, not just natural sound. There's the end of episode seven when he basically sums up why he's done everything on the court for the end result that he got and becomes emotional before they end the episode. There's the last 35 seconds against the Jazz to close everything up. And there's the what the actual title of the doc could have been had they not gone with the last dance, where it didn't matter if you didn't talk to Michael, if you did talk to Michael, if it was positive praise, negative praise, you just happened to bump shoulders with him in the hallway, you were at some place and he just needed to make a narrative so he may maybe have made a story up, the quote, it became personal. That could be part two of this, Doc, if they unleash thousands of hours of footage. If you want to throw another one together in 20 more years, it became personal. It was incredibly well done. Obviously, we're probably giving it more raves than we would had it aired when it was supposed to air because we would have had other things to fill our time and it wouldn't have been dominant of everything that we watch and think and do in terms of sports. But thank goodness it came when it did. I don't think it would have changed too much, even if we had other sports going on because I missed a live Taylor Swift televised concert last night to watch the last episode of the last dance. So that just goes to show how important this was the sacrifices the young man makes never ends so you got like a minute left to update us on the whole baseball situation we got a, a 67 page memo that was obtained with all subjective and objective rules and regulations that might be put in place like don't stand next to each other during the national anthem and you can only use a baseball if only two people have touched it and all these sorts of things that maybe will be put into play like no ubers after the game uh no showers no ubers. after that, the that game uh, saying I and mean, it's a slam dunk would you get an uber right now i would i've never been in one but nor do i have any desire to be in. but the point is of course not now 
look, they're going to do anything and everything they can to guard the players' safety and health. Uh, I don't think that will be an obstacle to this happening. The obstacle is money, how it's going to be paid or split, depending upon what the comeback is, the counteroffer from the players to the revenue sharing. You know, just to give you an idea, folks, the proposal is, you know, 50%, 50%, or maybe 52, 48. Now, just to show people why there isn't revenue sharing, last year the players got 39% of the revenue. That's why there isn't revenue sharing at 50-50. So think about the amount of money that the owners keep over and above the revenue share of the NBA and the National Football League. 61 to 39. That was the revenue split. If you look at it from a salary point of view in terms of the salary structure for each team. So now the owners want it for obvious reasons because revenues aren't going to be nearly as great. And the players will come back from whatever their counter is. And hopefully it's either they take maybe a 10 to 15% pay cut or maybe they defer some of their prorated salary to next year, whatever the case may be, I don't think you will see revenue sharing. I would be shocked if you see revenue sharing uh, under the plan as proposed by the owners and a season take place under that scenario. I'm not saying I guarantee it won't happen. I would be shocked if it's a revenue sharing agreement at those numbers. It could be a scenario where they agree to numbers to start, but based upon revenue, it increases with money being placed in escrow, you know, on a step, a stepping stone basis where you climb the ladder, the greater the revenues, uh, the greater percentage that players make. Uh, we'll see what Tony Clark and the rest of the union comes up with, but I would be shocked if it's a 50, 50 revenue sharing street split and we have a season. We'll see. Fingers are crossed. We'll talk again. Can't wait folks for the big man. My partner, the great John tiny Lund. I am Al Renato, AKA Alpha White Plants. Stay safe, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.